This is what Isaiah, son of Amoaz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, the house of God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his path. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Thank you, Patsy. Have you ever watched a movie as an adult that maybe you used to watch a lot as a child? you ever done that before, going back and watched a movie that you hadn't seen in 20 or 30 years, maybe? Maybe longer. What was your reaction, many of you? Oftentimes, my reaction is, Wow! That's kind of dark. I'm like, I can't believe I used to listen to that or used to watch that as a child. Things maybe you missed as a child or even as a teenager now stand out maybe a little bit more to you. As a child, we may have gotten the general gist of a movie or a show enough to stay interested or whatever, but we missed a lot of the plot or some of the details. One of those movies for me is one maybe y'all are familiar with called Bedknobs and Broomsticks. Y'all ever heard of that movie before? I used to love this movie as a child, one of my favorites. Uh, Well, we pulled it out not too long ago for our children. And I was somewhat shocked uh, to discover that Miss Price, the main character in the movie, is an apprentice witch. Um, The movie is basically a story about how she seeks to discover a particular spell that can rescue England from from the coming Nazi invasion. Um, somehow as a child I missed all of that, okay? Um, all those critical details. I remember some of the songs and rides around the world on this antique bed um, with this magical knob or whatever they would twist, uh, the, the cartoon Isle of Naboomboo, and so on. But somehow I missed how it all fit together, uh, which I guess makes sense as a child. But... I think for many of us, honestly, we read the Bible in a similar way. We come to passages like this one, like even, honestly, I did, and we get maybe some stuff out of it, but we struggle to put it all together. Maybe we remember some of the ideas or concepts, are kind of like, oh yeah, that makes sense, that makes sense, but many others don't. We might recognize some things, but we don't grasp how it fits in the larger picture, picture of the of the Bible or even together within its with this within just this passage itself. What is Zion? What are these high places? What is Judah exactly? What are the last days? Who is Jacob? Who is Isaiah? Right? It seems very obscure. Why should we care even really that people are going to come from all over one all over the place to go to this other random place, Jerusalem, and be taught by God? What's the big deal about that? 
Some of you who you know made church a big part of your life, maybe it makes sense to you, and you have some general categories, and you and you grasp uh, the answers to these questions. But I don't want to take that for granted. I assume that many people are probably looking at this, going, "What in the world is this passage talking about?" Those of you who are in tune with the Christian calendar may be wondering, in fact, this morning, okay, what does this have to do with this baby in a manger, Pastor? Right? I mean, Advent just kicked off this Sunday. Where's baby Jesus, right? Well, I don't have time to answer every question, of course, about this passage. But if we're going to understand what God is saying to us through Isaiah this morning, probably where we should start, at least, is with some context. Okay? So anytime I jump into the Old Testament, especially, I want to try and give a little context. Because you can't assume that what's going on. It's, all, it's not always extremely clear. So I'm going to do a little bit of that, okay, um, as we get started here. Well, when you and I read right off the bat um, a passage like this, maybe at first glance, we feel pretty good about it, right? Maybe you read it and thought, okay, it's a feel-good passage. People are coming from the nations. They're going to be being taught by the Lord. They're going to be walking in His ways. Um, so on and so forth. Seems very positive. We get an overall good feeling from a passage like this, right? There's no looming judgment, or at least right here in the five verses that we read, doesn't seem to be anything going on like that. And we should be positive. It is a good passage, right? As all passages in the Bible are good, per se, in the sense that they're right. But you know what I mean. There's a good kind of rosy, cozy feeling that comes from this passage. People are being taught by God and to walk in His light and so on. But we should notice that near the beginning of this passage, right up front, okay, you should notice that after that heading there about Isaiah, the son of Amos, um, Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it says, in the last days, okay? Miss Kathy pointed this out to the children. This is seemingly from these words speaking about maybe a future time. In the last days it will come to pass. Some translations have it shall come to pass in the latter days or now it will come about in the last days. You might read this in, in a different translation. The point is Isaiah's words here are not about this current moment in time. When he wrote, which would have been 700 years before the time of Jesus Christ-ish. Um, that's when we believe this was around that time, um, 600s and 700s B.C. Um, he was not speaking about something that was going to happen to those people whom he was speaking to directly. He's saying to the people then and there, one day all of this will happen, but it's not now. In the last days, all of these good positive things will take place. Kind of like when Megan got home from Black Friday shopping the other night. She went out for uh, quite a few hours with some friends. And the kids were like, where's all the presents? When she walked in. Give me my presents. Give me my stuff. Right? Let's get them out and play with them right now, Mom. Mom went shopping for us. Let's celebrate. Right? But we had to say, well, there are some presents. There are some blessings and good things. But they're not for right now. Right? You gotta wait. We gotta wait until Christmas. Okay? That's kinda like what Isaiah is doing here. He's saying, you know, God's got some wonderful blessings in store for you. God has blessed you, and He wants to bless you even more. But now's not the time. You're not ready. You're not ready. Maybe we wonder, like my children did, why they cannot have the gifts. Why not? You know, my, my boy does this thing now. His. You know, crosses his arm. I probably did it too, so I'm not picking on him. But 
And we probably all did that, right? But that's his thing, right? Maybe, why? Why can't I, I have the presence right now? It's all the same. Tomorrow's no different than today. Christmas is no different. Just a 24-hour period of time, right? What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is this. You're not ready. Maybe, in a way, tomorrow is no different than today, in a way. They're both, again, 24-hour periods. But you know what might be different? You know what might be different tomorrow? You. You might be in a different place tomorrow. Sometimes God withholds things from us because we are not ready for them. Sometimes there's still work that needs to happen inside of us before we can receive the goodies or the presents, so to speak. Because even though this passage has a positive feel to it, when you read on, if you were to read on a little bit further in Isaiah chapter 2, you're going to find that Israel is in a very, very dark place. In the historical moment in which Isaiah was preaching to these people, there was great evil in the land. In fact, the very next verse, all the way up through into chapter 4 of Isaiah, God is revealing Israel's guilt. He's speaking against their sins and is telling the people that He's going to judge them. Let's just take the next few verses right here to give you a sampling of this. Start with verse 6, if you have your Bible open. You, Lord, have abandoned your people, the descendants of Jacob. They are full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination like the Philistines and embrace pagan customs. Their land is full of silver and gold. There is no end to their treasures. Their land is full of horses. There is no end to their chariots. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands to what their own fingers have made. Did you hear that? The people are in idol worship. The Lord had abandoned His people, the Word says. Why? Because they got bed knobs and broomsticks everywhere in their land, right? There's witchcraft, divination, superstition, just like all the pagan nations around them. Idols fill the land. God's covenant people had abandoned their God. The God that they promised that they and their families would serve. They abandoned Him. But this is not new in Israel's history, is it? Those of you who know anything about the Old Testament, this is kind of run-of-the-mill for Israel, right? This is the way it had basically been from the time of Israel's beginnings as a nation. Okay? Now I want to walk through very quickly just a few moments in Israel's history with you so you can get a sense of, of where they are as we arrive at this passage in Isaiah. Okay? And why maybe up to this point they haven't received the blessings that God had promised to them, or at least some of them. Think of their time in the wilderness. Okay, Those of you who know about this, right? They were, they were slaves in Egypt for many years. Kind of a long story, I won't go into it. But they were slaves. God sent Moses to free them. They come out of the wilderness. They're headed to the promised land. What do they do? God wants to bless them. He says, I've got a land for you. I'm going to take you to this awesome land. I've got presents for you. I've got some good stuff for you. And what happens? They barely get to Mount Sinai and they carve up a calf and they say, this golden calf, this pew, this thing here that we've crafted, that's what delivered us out of Egypt, out of the hand of slavery. That's what did it. 
they start grumbling, oh, that we could go back to Egypt and you know, if only, you know, what's God doing out here, this nasty food that He's dropping out of the sky for us. They complain so much that God doesn't allow them to enter into the promised land. The whole generation has to die off before He'll let them in. Forty years they wander and wander and wander because they weren't ready. Their hearts clearly weren't in the right place. So they had to wait on the presence. Their hearts weren't ready to receive the presence. Okay, now think about Israel's kings. Let's go to another moment in Israel's history, alright? Think about Israel's kings. Israel basically had one, maybe two, really faithful kings over its, over its history. The most famous of those was who? King David, that's right. But even David failed greatly, right? As you know the story. You remember the infamous infamous story of David and Bathsheba. And how he had her husband Uriah killed uh, to cover up his affair. The presence that God had prepared for Israel during the time of King David seemed like they were just a moment away. They really were going to be this light to the nations. They really were going to be this people through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed as was promised to Abraham. David's forefather. But no. Maybe it looked like there would, but their leader failed them. He goofed up. He misled them. And then all sorts of disaster comes after that. They were still not ready. God's time of blessing had not come. After David's death, who rises up? Solomon, right? King Solomon. Solomon did pretty well at the beginning. He was chosen to build God's temple. He wasn't a man of war like his father David. So God said, I'll let you build the temple, right? you got clean hands. They're not covered with blood. It seems like it's starting off great. This magnificent temple that he had constructed for the people of God. It seemed like maybe for a time, though all the promises of God would come true, that Israel would be that light and that blessing again. But later in his life, like his father David, what happened to King Solomon? Solomon fell into great sin, taking many, many wives for himself and oppressing his people with hard labor. The Lord warned him repeatedly, your foreign wives are going to lead you into worship of false gods. He didn't listen. He didn't listen. And because he did not listen to, to God, the Lord told him these words in 1 Kings chapter 11. Listen to me, this is important. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of, your, of David your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son, yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him. But will give him one tribe for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem which I have chosen. So you do see grace there. He's being grace, gracious. He said, I'll, I'll give him a tribe, but I'm going to tear the rest away from you. God's discipline. All of this came to pass, of course, as God told Solomon it would. Was Israel ready again to, to receive the presence? Were they ready to receive these blessings and these gifts in their fullness that God had promised to them? doesn't seem so. Um, 
Okay, before we continue, one other thing I wanted to say. I got to thinking as I was putting this together that maybe some of you weren't, uh, wouldn't be maybe clear on the 12 tribes. I don't want to assume, um, right? There's all this talk of, you know, taking a tribe here and a tribe there, and we read about Judah and all these tribes and what's going on with the tribes, okay? So I thought I would say something very, very quickly about that to clear it up since um, the message today has a lot to do with some of these tribes. Uh, Tim, will you pull up the 12 tribes? Um, it's not the greatest. It is a good diagram, but the color is not super great. Um, you're going to hear talk of the northern tribes and the southern tribes and so on uh, today. What's that all about? Well, there were 12 tribes in biblical Israel going back to Jacob. Okay, This is just a quick aside, a, a parenthesis, if you will, in, in the message this morning. Um, going back to Jacob. Who is Jacob? Jacob was the son of Isaac, who is the son of Abraham, right? But Jacob had two wives, Leah and Rachel, and together they had 12 sons. The 12 tribes of Israel are the descendants of those 12 sons. So when they came into the land, God allotted a certain portion of land to each of the 12 tribes. So when you hear things like Jacob or house of Jacob like we do in our passage today, I don't, again, I'm sure some of you are like, what in the world is that all about? That's just another way of saying the families of Israel. And actually later on in Jacob's life, God wrestled with him and changed his name to Israel, which actually means wrestle in the Hebrew. Um, so when we say Israel, we're speaking of these 12 tribes. Okay, thank you, Brother Tim, in parenthesis there. Um, very, very important to kind of get that in your head for just a moment. Okay, well, very quickly, again, we talked about David's failure. We talked about wilderness failure, David's failure, Solomon's failure. Well, what happened after Solomon? Very quickly, just a quick, a couple of minutes on Israelite history to catch us up to where we are in the time of Isaiah. But what happened after Solomon is very important. Maybe we think, hopefully, things will get a little bit better, right? Maybe we think, surely they're going to get their act together, right? Surely things are going to improve. Will the people repent and change their wicked ways? Well, the Bible tells us no. No, they do not. Idolatry actually becomes sort of the law of the land um, in a certain part of Israel anyways in the kingdom. Quick history here. Rehoboam, Solomon's son. So we've got David, Solomon, Rehoboam. The people of the northern tribes, remember you saw the north right there, right? They come, they come to Rehoboam and they say, look, your, your father was brutal. Right? He was brutal in how he exacted all this hard labor on us. He was merciless and wasn't, wasn't helpful to us. Would you be kind to us and not be like your father Solomon? And Rehoboam arrogantly says, he said, you see that little finger right there? He said, that thing's thicker than my father's thigh. That's literally what he says. He said, you think his work was hard. Wait till you see what I got for you. What an idiot. Right? I mean, just being silly, but really, what happened is they said, we're not going to serve you. They go and they kill the leader of the forced labor group. And they say, we're going to do our own thing. The heck with you. And they appoint their own king and they break away. Jeroboam becomes king of the northern tribes at that point. All because Rehoboam said, you know what? I did the macho thing. My pinky is stronger than my dad's thigh. I mean, how ridiculous. But that's what he did. And they broke away and said, the heck with you. One pastor and scholar says this about these events in Israel's history. Again, leading up to our time in Isaiah here. This is one of the great turning points in the history of Israel and is crucial to our understanding of the Bible. Okay, If we're going to understand passages like this and what's happening here, we need to grasp a little bit of, of what's happening before all of this. 
From this point on, the southern kingdom will be known as Judah. So when you read about Judah, it's talking about the southern kingdom. Okay? With Jerusalem as its capital and one of David's descendants as their king. The northern kingdom, composed of the ten tribes that broke away, will be known as Israel. Samaria will eventually become its capital and its dynasties will frequently change. But the glorious days of the United Kingdom under Saul, David, and Solomon are gone. They're gone. One reason the northern kingdom will be so evil. Judah at least had a little bit of a couple of kings that would come along that seemed to you know, keep things somewhat near where they needed to be. The worship remained in Jerusalem and they tried to promote uh, godliness amongst the people. A couple of leaders would in general still not quite right, but the northern kingdom was just off the charts evil. One reason that they're so evil right from the outset was because Jerusalem was not there. Where was Jerusalem? It was in Judah. It's in the southern kingdom. Right? So what happens now? Jeroboam is appointed as king over the northern tribes and he says, well, I don't want my people going down to that cult, you know, to those people down there in the south or whatever and having their hearts swayed away from me. So I'm going to set up altars in the high places, as they were called high places in, in the olden times. Uh, myth, mythological uh, religions whatnot, not believe that the gods dwelled on mountaintops. So they would always set up altars in high places on mountaintops uh, for worship. So Jeroboam says, I don't want them going down to the south and their hearts being led astray and them being loyal to that you know, Rehoboam guy down there. So I'm going to set up altars. Brother Tim, will you pull that other slide up for me? I'm going to set up a couple of altars in the northern kingdom. One in the north, way up there, you see it in Dan. And one in the south, in Bethel. He set up uh, golden calves. He carved up golden calves and he had altars built and he set them up there. And he led the people astray. Israel sadly had only fallen even further away now into this point in time in their history. Their hearts were still not ready to receive God's good gifts that He had for them. Do you see this? How it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. Now the kingdom's divided up. Um, the Assyrians are going to come in from the north and basically overtake the north before too long and then ba- the Babylonians will come in a couple hundred years later, destroy the temple and everything else in the south and it's, it's history from there. And now Isaiah comes. A couple hundred years after Jeroboam, after the northern kingdom is established, okay, comes Isaiah. So we believe... Um, Archaeology and other evidence suggests that Jeroboam lived in the 9th and 10th centuries. Isaiah was 6th, 7th centuries, or 7th, 8th century, excuse me. A couple hundred years after Jeroboam. So we're talking hundreds and hundreds of years from the time of the wilderness wanderings all the way up to Isaiah that the people of Israel struggled with idolatry. Hundreds and hundreds of years. Okay? You can take it down, Brother Tim. Thank you. So you think about this and you wonder, what in the world is going on here? Right? What, what is, why is this continuing? Why is God doing this or allowing all of this to happen, maybe? 
His people have persisted in their wicked ways for hundreds of years and they still do not seem ready at the time the New Testament arrives. Definitely now the time Isaiah is here, even at the time of the New Testament, doesn't seem that they're ready to receive the blessings that God had promised them way back in Genesis. You know why this is especially shocking, okay? All that considered, okay? Thank you for that brief moment of Israel history there to catch you up to kind of where we are. Um, There's a lot more to say about that, but that was a bird's eye view. You know why all of this is especially shocking? It's because Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations. And look at this. They were supposed to be a light. Back when Abraham was called by God in Genesis chapter 12, what did he say to Abraham? He said that he would be a blessing to all the nations, that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. God had a special plan for Abraham's people, for Israel. But what they didn't get was that that plan was about sharing. It was about being a conduit, about letting God's light shine through them. It wasn't about soaking up the light. It was never intended that Israel hoard God's gifts and blessings, but rather that the other nations be invited into the worship of God as well. For instance, later on, remember the Lord Jesus. Later on, remember the story of Jesus going up to the temples. Maybe some of you all remember this story. Jesus goes up to the temples and He's angry because of the merchants there. He sees them selling things and turning God's house into a marketplace. And what does He do? He turns over tables and one account says He pulls out a whip and He drives them out of the temple. What does He say to them? He says, My house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. For all the nations, he says. But you have turned it into a den of robbers. Angry was the Lord. This was supposed to be about God using Israel to bless all the nations, but Israel failed to even maintain their own relationship with God, let alone be a light to others. Again, in the New Testament, some 700 years more or so after, more or less after the time of Isaiah, Jesus would stand on a ridge of hills with the view of the Sea of Galilee in the distance beautiful spot and he would tell the people of Israel that they are the light of the world he said he would tell them that you are a city on a hill you cannot be hidden a city on a hill can't be hidden neither do the people light a lamp and put her under a basket he says in Matthew 5 instead they set it on a lampstand and it gives light to everyone in the house in the same way let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven They were the lamp in the dark room. In this dark world, they were the lamp. Israel was intended to be the light. In fact, the language that Jesus uses here in this message from Matthew chapter 5 resembles very much the language from Isaiah 2 in our passage today. Did you notice that? Talking about being a city on a hill, right? Not being hidden. In the last days, it says, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. The language resembles Matthew 5. Isaiah says the Lord's temple, the Lord's house is in the, in the actual Hebrew, will be set up on a hill for all the nations to see. So again, I ask, what's the problem? This is maybe where where we're getting somewhere with all of this. What's the problem here? Why has Israel failed to be the people that God 
wanted them to be. Why had the nations not flocked to the mountain of the Lord at this point here in the history of Israel? Why has this failed to happen? Well, you could, of course, we know as Christians, God had a, a plan. God was executing that plan. That's a part of it. But I want us to look more on the surface here, okay? I want to get too, too caught up in the whole um, vision at this point. But right now, on the surface, go a little, let's go a little deeper into chapter 2 to get the answer as to maybe the, what the persistent sin was in Israel's uh, national life. Um, start at verse 10 if you've got your Bible open there in chapter 2. If you go to verse 10. Excuse me. Go into the rocks, hide in the ground from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of His majesty. The eyes of the arrogant will be humbled and human pride brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and the lofty. For all that is exalted and they will be humbled. For all the cedars of Lebanon, tall and lofty, and all the oaks of Bashan, for all the towering mountains and all the high hills, for every lofty tower and every fortified wall, for every trading ship and every stately vessel, the arrogance of man will be brought low and human pride humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day and the idols will totally disappear. Amen. Israel was proud. They were proud of their wealth. They were proud of their glorious temple, of their architecture, of their walls, of themselves. They were proud of everything but God. Somehow they failed to see how needy they really were. They couldn't look back over their long history and see how desperately needy they were for God's intervention. They failed to see how their history showed that their hearts were sick and black and hard. And because they couldn't see their need and their moral depravity, they couldn't see God. They couldn't see that maybe the reason they failed to be a light to the nations was that God never asked them to preach to the world. Look how great we are! No, God wanted them to say, How great is our God. How mighty is the Lord of hosts. How beautiful is His law. And how magnificent are all His works. They had ceased to be all that God wanted them to be because they had made it about themselves. And as a result, the nations had led them astray and they had fallen into idol worship and superstition and other idolatries. Israel was not ready to receive the presence. They were not ready. Her heart was proud and her eyes were blind. Some 700 years, again, after Isaiah's time, one, who, one would come who would do the very things that are prophesied about here in this passage and in some of the passages like Isaiah 11. If you take a moment to flip over there, if you get a chance, maybe this afternoon or something. This beautiful messianic passage that clearly points to the Lord Jesus Christ. But the answer to the problem of Israel's unfaithfulness would arrive on the scene a few hundred years after Isaiah's time, one who could change their proud hearts. But Israel, when he did arrive, was still not ready to receive the presence that God had prepared for her. What did they do? 
They killed him. They put him to death. The greatest gift of all, Jesus Christ, would come down as a babe, humble, born in a manger, in poverty and in obscurity. One who would draw the people from all nations to the mountain of God. One who would preach the law and the statutes of God. One who would teach the people to walk in His ways. One who would judge between the nations and who would teach peace and establish it upon the earth. And I know there's various views of that. Some people believe that's going to happen in the millennium. Some believe it's going to happen in other ways. I'm not going to get into those details. But clearly it's Jesus doing it, right? That's the big point. Yet they crucified Him when He came. They killed Him. And you know what? We did that too. We crucified Jesus. I'm not going to put it all on Jesus. It's not the right way to construe it here. Israel's story is our story. We are no different. We should see in Israel us. There's a lesson for us, I think, in this today. And it's this simple message. This is what I end with. A couple sentences here for you. If you want to receive the gifts that God has for you this morning, this Advent season, you must come humbly. You've got to let go. You've got to relinquish control. You can't have control in your life if you want to follow this person. You let go. And you say, I trust you with my life. I trust you with my salvation. I, I, can't, I can't earn it. I can't work my way to you, God. The only way you will see God this Advent season is if you empty yourself. Don't attempt to be anything for God. Let Him be everything for you. And then you will be ready to receive all the many wonderful gifts God has for you. Most importantly, Himself. That's the gift of Advent. is the Lord Jesus. Receiving this Advent season in humility. Let's pray together. Father, we don't want to just sit here and pick on Israel. That's not the right way to do it, God. That wouldn't be the right way to construe it, Lord. We know that their story is our story. Their brokenness is a reflection of our brokenness. God, we know that if we were in their shoes, we would have done no different. So, Lord, we humble ourselves before you. And we see how prone we are, God, to turn away, to not see, to be blind, to reject the light, to turn from it, run the other way. God, grant uh, this Advent season as we prepare our hearts for that wonderful day when the babe is born. God, prepare our hearts. Grant that we would be able to empty ourselves. You tell us in your word that the sacrifices of God are a contrite spirit. A humble heart. These you will not despise. We come to you in repentance and faith. Believing that Jesus is enough. We don't need to add anything. I don't bring my works. I don't bring my wealth. I don't bring my my looks or anything that I am. I come completely empty to you this season, God. And I say, you are enough, Jesus. I pray you would be enough for these people. And one day we look forward to that hope. We believe that Israel too will repent one day and will embrace their Messiah. We rejoice in that idea, God, and we pray that now we would, with our own faith and our own life, we would hasten that day, Lord. Maybe we would provoke all the Gentiles in the world, would provoke Israel to jealousy, that they might embrace Jesus in faith and say, no, that's our Messiah, and that they would come. 
So Lord, work in us this Advent season. Grant that we would walk with you humbly and receive you as you are. In Jesus' name, amen.